Thursday, April 9th, 2009, Upon Further Review, episode number 69. Easter is nearly upon us, but here at Upon Further Review, we're not about fuzzy bunnies and candy. We're about serious matters, like baseball stadiums and Star Trek. But if you want to go color eggs, that's fine with us. Just make sure you put Upon Further Review at the top of your Easter basket. Upon Further Review, I'm Greg. I'm Clea. And welcome to episode 69 of Upon Further Review. We hope everyone out there is doing well. And uh, everyone has been, you know, I don't know, having a nice uh, spring leading into summer. I don't really have any, you know, nice introductory banter for this particular show. Well, I think show. probably the difficulty is that you, you were going to say spring and then you remembered that it snowed yesterday morning. That's a good point. Yeah, here in New York City, we would expect that by April 8th or 9th, it would at least, you know, maybe it could be a little bit brisk, but uh, no, it was snowing, yeah. actually. And we're not complaining. I mean, it always annoyed me, people that live in New England, think, oh, this would snow. We're like, move to Florida if you have an issue. But, but in April. You have to admit, it is a bit <laughs> odd, right? Yeah, I'd agree. It's, it's a little bit strange, uh, although it was warmer today, so that's, that's good to know. Uh, you know, actually, I found it kind of funny, and I found it kind of sad. Really? Yeah. Did you, uh, the dreams where you were cold yeah. were the best you ever had? Yes. <laughs> Clea has been uh, going wild over this uh, American <laughs> Idol performance. Some of you may have seen of uh, the Tears for Fears song, Mad World, which is a good song. But the guy who did it, Adam Lambert, did a version by Gary Jules, which is a, a sort of a remix it's of the song. Slowed it down, stripped it down. Yeah, and actually made it into a better song. I mean, it was, I was telling to Clea, this sometimes happens in the band, too, where you write a song one way, and you think, oh, it's good, and then you listen to it, and you're like, it was a pretty good song. Why was I doing it that way? <laughs> and you realize you have to kind of play it differently, let's say. Yeah, um, but I mean, it was the originally. 80s. It came out in 1982. For those of you who don't know Tears for Fears, they were like Duran Duran, you know, but... They're the ones that did the show, show, let it all out, that song. These are the th- okay. I can do with it. Uh, um, so, I mean, you have to give them credit that they had to actually be a band in the 80s. And I think if they came out <laughs> with the version that makes it today... It, it, people would have been booing them off However, the stage. However, they take it into, a, into account the fact that they had to be abandoned in the 80s. Right. It's true. So I it mean, meant they had to have the, the poofy hair, yep. and they had to do the funky Vogue dance. And Clea said when she saw them, she's like, oh, there are only two guys in the band. I'm like, welcome to the 80s. Two guys plus like 700 synthesizers. That's all you need. Um, you know, but anyway, it was a good song. And See, so maybe since you then, should, Clea's if you'd been, been in a band in the 80s, you wouldn't have your issue right now trying to find that other guitarist. I know, guitarist. I know. We're looking for another guitarist. If anyone out there, by the way, is a good guitar player who lives in the New England area, we'd love to talk to you we had been missing a drummer and a guitar player we've got a drummer who we're very happy with and so now we're just looking for the guitar player and our second album is gonna is just about finished so we're looking to tour this summer to support it kind of hard to tour when you don't have a full band so yeah if we were back in the 80s then we could just you know replace them with like a uh, with like a, a synthesizer loop yeah. we shouldn't let my guitarist aaron know about this though the other guitarist because he might take us he up on that be like pedals. let's do that <laughs> so we hope everyone has been doing well and uh we have today the final segment of our minister Fauci interview. So we're going to be reviewing something first, and then we're going to move on to the third and final part of Minister Faust. And then on our next show, which we'll try to get out there in a couple of weeks, we'll be back to our normal format. 
Okay, so what we have on the docket for today was we had the chance, friends of ours got tickets for us to go to see the opening exhibition game. I shouldn't say the opening, the second exhibition game, right. I guess, at the new Met Stadium called City Field. And we had a chance to go see it, and we thought that we would review City Field and then talk a little bit about ballparks in general and about the economy as it relates to sport ballparks, sports stadiums, and things like that. And then Greg will do a 30-second rant around the New York Stadium. The new Yankee new, Stadium yes. and why it's not new yes. and not because much of a he needs thing. to purge yes, his do. anger. Meet the Mets, meet the Mets, step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kiddies, bring your wife, guaranteed to have the time of your life. So we're going to start by reviewing City Field, and you can find this, Cleo, what's the website? NewYorkMetsMLB.com. So NewYork.Mets.MLB.com. And there's plenty of backslashes and ballpark stuff. But if you do a search in for City Field at C-I-T-I-F-I-E-L-D, you'll find it. That's correct. And uh, if you, you will have a much easier time once you're in the park doing a search for City Field because you can't turn around with running into City This, City That, City The Other Thing. When it's they got the naming rights, they... So funny. Because they got they don't bailed. Exist I know, I know, I know. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> so this is the new Mets stadium. And by way of background, I know that we have a couple. Drum Intellect that I know is a big Mets fan. And I should say for people who don't know that um, the Mets have played for years baseball in Shea Stadium, which was in Queens. And Shea was well known for being um, not the most. Not the Red most sort of advanced. Junk? Yeah, it was. It was really. It was a hole. Is what Shea was. <laughs> uh, Shea was a hole. Um, I went there a couple of times, and uh, you know, it was terrible. It was a terrible. Guys. It was one of those like you know late '60s. You know, we think we can make a park by you know have it be just sort of nondescript, and the fact that you know there are sort of late '60s technology means people will love it, and they didn't. You know, it was like the Houston yeah. Astrodome was the same way, and so it was really a terrible park, and it was badly in need of replacement, mm-hmm. and so the Mets a few years ago started working working on this new stadium and as it happened the Yankees got into the act they wanted their stadium and so there's actually two because stadiums they have to be the favorite child right that's right because well, if otherwise the second born gets to have it then, then we why don't we to, do we, dad we yeah I think that's true and then daddy Bloomberg agrees and so the Mets and the Yankees are actually opening up stadiums in the same year which is very unusual I can't yeah. I can't remember the last time if I've ever heard of two stadiums opening up in the same city in the same year in my lifetime well, so if that's, anyone has the gall to do it it's the New York Yankees yeah no you would you would definitely think so so we had a chance to go see it on Saturday and there's a couple things about this. First of all, when we got there, it was freezing. Oh this is gosh. sort of going back to that April thing I was talking about. It must have been like low 40s, and the wind chill must have been 15 degrees below that. It, it was, was absolutely awful. freezing. And, and we had, all the parts of City Field is as open to the breeze and air. It's like they made it as open as possible. Yeah. Everything's as columns, not walls. Yes, exactly. So, so everything is like we, sort of one wind tunnel yes, after the other. It is at, they created a wind tunnel. Yes. And we were we were not, you know, the thing about City Field is that they actually reduced the number of seats. I think it's 42,000 seats on the it's outside. 45,000. <clears throat> 45,000. And so they reduced the number of seats from what had been available in Shea. So when you go to the sort of what's called the top section, the promenade, you're really much closer to the field than you were in the old Shea Stadium. But even so, 
snow when you're up in the stadium and the wind is kind of blowing it was it was rough so that was one thing and you know we brought Senevine who you know I think she had a good time but yeah, we definitely had sport. to we had to keep her bundled up and we ended up she had, we well, had to course, buy a Mets outfit I know which was and, and, t- and talk about this I mean I brought you know now of course she has full Red Sox outfit naturally yes. and so we had the Boston Red Sox hat for her but then she's freezing and everything and you know and everything, so we so. had to get her a Mets outfit so she's yeah. wearing this Mets sweatshirt and hoodie with the Red Sox hat so there was clearly some confused mojo going on there but <laughs> but, um, but but see no I told you it wasn't because it was a Red Sox Mets game exhibition game yes so you might say well of course clear there's going to be both Red Sox and Mets fan in the audience but they were all friends every group of people that arrived had Red Sox and Mets people in the group right they, there just seems to be this kinship. Well, yeah, because they both loathe the Yankees. Yeah. And, you know, I've never had any it's trouble like with Mets It's like the Irish people. and the Scottish, and they both Hating loathe the English. English. I think that's an excellent example. Thank you. It would be like um, the, you know, the residents of Tatooine. Yes. And the Ewoks uh-huh. would probably get along against the Empire. Okay. Right? That's, that. well, that is harsher, but that would to be expected from you. Hmm. Because they who's are the, the... Who's the Darth Vader? Um, Derek Jeter. No, man. He can't be Darth... Well, no. he's too short. That's true. He's, he's and he has no range. He's too boring and useless. <laughs> he's too boring and useless. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll find you a more evil figure. It is funny that when the Yankees introduce themselves, they, they're they players, they play the Empire theme. You know, the da 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 oh, really? da 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 oh, well, When the other so team is coming out... And that, no, that's why I was doing it, because they've been called the Evil Empire by the president that's of the Red Sox. Funny. Okay, and then okay. when the Yankees come out, they start playing the Rebellion theme. I'm like, if you think the Yankees are the Rebellion against the Evil Empire, if they they created the Death Star. That's what they did. Like, they, they built the Death they, Star in the 1970s. And they were, anyway, yes. we'll get to the Yankee Stadium in a minute. Sorry. But, so back to City Field. So um, it's even in our review... We are overshadowed the by the Yankees. With the Yankees. <laughs> so when you walk into City Field, you walk through the Jackie Robinson Rotunda. Mm. And I think the one criticism that sort of jumps to mind about the park is that it's very kind of Brooklyn Dodgers focused and National League focused. I didn't see a whole lot of Mets emphasis. I mean, you know, once you, if you look at the outside, there are all these Mets players and obviously they have retired numbers on the inside, but you know, like the in, inside wall is painted black with orange trim. That's really the San Francisco Giants more than it is, than, no, 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 you know, no. more than it is the Mets. But Drummond you know, like will have to explain this to you because it was explained to us that they've taken on orange and black now. Yeah, but uh, but that's uh, yeah, but not for everything. I don't know. I I really it looked to me more like a San Francisco kind of look than anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you have the apple, which we didn't get to see because the only ones hitting home runs were the Red Sox. Holla! Um, <laughs> but all we saw were uh, there was an apple, which when the Mets hit a home run, that apple would rise above the hat and everyone would go crazy. So they've brought a new high tech apple, I gather, from uh, you know to this new stadium. But we didn't get to see that. But we did see that it was there out in the outfield. But I mean, there was just not a lot of Mets sort of emphasis. And I was a little surprised about that. I mean, the owner of the team, Fred Wilpon, is a big Brooklyn Dodgers fan. And obviously there's a spiritual connection there because you wouldn't have a New York Mets if Mm -hmm. the Dodgers hadn't left and gone to Los Angeles. So Mm -hmm. I understand that. But it still felt a little bit kind of sort of generic National League to me. That said, though, I think that, you know, it's a really beautiful park. It's unusual. It feels intimate. There really aren't any bad seats in terms of seeing the game. Yeah. You know, we had, there were a lot of concession stands that were easy to get to on all of the, the different floors. If you want to get to some restaurants, like the Shake Shack, for example, they had that on the second floor. I don't know. Maybe it was because it was new, but none of the vending places had everything on their menu. 
No, but for an exhibition game, though, I mean, it, you know, they had a lot of it, though. I mean, don't they one, have something to prove in an exhibition game? I don't know. One of the things that surprised me was that the prices were not as bad as I expected them it to be. It didn't blow me away. Uh, yeah. I mean, they were not great. It's still like four fifty for a hot dog, but it was not the absurd Yankee Stadium prices that you would otherwise pay. And they also have a lot of different choices depending on where you went. You could get, you know, sushi and Mexican food, and uh, you know, a lot of the things that you see at a lot of the modern ballparks like Safeco and places like that. But I was impressed nonetheless that the prices were not absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, who knows, maybe they'll jack them up in the summer or whatever. I know that because of the economy, they have not sold the number of season tickets they wanted to sell, neither of the Yankees, but that's an issue too. But the seats are, you know, no bad seats really in the house in terms of seeing the field. It was easy, relatively easy to move around. There were enough elevators. There were enough things. Now, it was an exhibition game, so it wasn't absolutely packed, but it was pretty close. I mean, it was a sold-out game, and it looked like most of the people had come. And there were a lot of people moving around looking at the stadium obviously and i never felt like it was overly crowded or too much or i couldn't deal with it you know it was, it was tough to tell though because i think it, it really was so cold and windy and yeah. it being an exhibition game i think some people left maybe and I do think people were moving around more than maybe they would have. Because they wanted to like keep moving because to keep otherwise keep they would have gotten They would have frozen to death. And then there would have been even less seats because they couldn't take the people out of the seats because they would have frozen Oh, and they don't them. want that because remember the announcement that they were making over the... <laughs> it was uh, funny. When you're waiting in line to get in, the lines were a little long to get in. But yeah, when you're waiting in line to get in, they say something like, welcome to City Field, blah, 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 blah. And they go through all these things. It's important for us to be safe because we want you to be safe and uh, travel safely. And we want you back. It's like, you know, like, we don't want you to die. Like, you know, but, hi, welcome to City Field. Please don't die. Please Why? come Not back. Why? because and, we care about you. But because, but because we need because you back. We need you to come Ticket back sales to the are next tough. game. Come on, let's go back. But actually, no, that's a really good point about the lines. Those lines were ridiculous. Yeah, they were very long to get in, and I'm not sure why that was. I don't know why. I wonder if they could open more gates, if there were more gates that they would open for a regular game and not exhibit. I, I don't know. Maybe. They moved pretty quickly, but they were still pretty long lines. It was lines. ridiculous. Getting to the stadium was very easy. It was just Matty just got off the stadium, walked down the steps, and you know you're across a tiny little road, and you're right there. Well, we took the subway. I mean, maybe it's from different the subway. If you take the, if you drive right from the subway. I don't know about the driving yet, but from the subway, that's the way it was. Um, I mean, I know driving and getting into Shea used to be a pain. Like I've heard lots of people complaining about it. Right. So I don't know if they addressed that issue. Right. The seats themselves were pretty comfortable. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then the, so, I mean, on the whole, I was, you know, I was very impressed. And of course, I was happy because the Red Sox uh, blew them out of the stadium. So that yes, was nice. I, I thought it was I, a very I, I, well done stadium. I don't agree with the whole, like, no Mets to be found kind of thing. And I'm not sure about, you know, some of the, you know, the sight lines were all good. I'm not sure about the, it's not going to be pleasant in October or early April. <laughs> but I think most of the year, you know, when you're talking like mid to late, late April, all the way through the rest of the and season, it's be a good there's place no to watch a game. place to go to get warm. Yeah, because there was no indoor location like unless stores. you're wealthy, right, or the <laughs> right. stores. You could go to a store, and then it's fine. And all the stores had lines right. because there's a maximum amount of people that can be in a store. So we'd have to wait in line to get into the store. Mm-hmm. That, I think, was is was really actually my only issue. I mean, mm-hmm. you said – I mean, I do kind of agree with you. But, you know, they'll, they're going to make – hopefully make it their own. Yep. Where they will, you know, hopefully get a, a Mets feel to it, but that was my only issue. And it looks beautiful. No place to go indoors. Right, that's true. It looks beautiful from the outside as well. I mean, it's a pretty park. The behind home plate is this brick wall that kind of, you know, this low brick wall. It's very stylish and very classy. And so I was very impressed with the park. It had a little, I think they call it a right field porch. They had a little area. It was kind of almost like um, a bridge. Right. And uh, lots of like tables and chairs where you can actually see the game from right you could actually sit and watch the game which yeah. which i think is pretty cool so i i, I like the park 
One major issue, though, which I just want to bring up briefly, uh, and it's, maybe you can use this to segue just briefly into my Yankee Stadium rant, <laughs> is the city helped kick in money for this stadium. And I think I may have mentioned before, I am completely and utterly against any public money going to a private stadium unless and until that private stadium starts giving the public tickets for free. Until that happens, there is or absolutely no ri- – No, not a discount. Not a discount. Why should they get any- – the, these people are multi-billionaires. There is no – they I, need no money ever. I understand your ever. point, Greg. So, no, they, they're only multi-millionaires if they, if they make some money. That's not Greg. true. The, the 99.9% of the owners in this business oh, got their money from somewhere else. Almost nobody makes their money off the team. So they don't need this for this. They do this no. because they like the – Eagle. No, it's, no, no it's, that's not true. It Greg. is true. If you read, no, it's true, clearly. The vast no, majority of them are money. money. No, they're of making... course they're trying to make money, but that's not the point. They don't need these teams to make money. I'll show you plenty of examples of it. The why baseball, was that, the Sonics that Sonics guy leaving the town because, because he's it's not basketball, money. not baseball. I'm talking about baseball. Oh, you're specifically saying baseball. I'm specifically baseball. saying baseball. I frankly, I think almost no owner that owns any professional team needs any money at all. No, I, I think they all plead prob poverty. I agree but with that. But especially in baseball, there's there's absolutely no reason for it. None. Zero. There's no reason to give these people money. And the city, which always falls on its sword about this and is always like, oh, my God, because they start playing chicken and they say, maybe I'm going to go somewhere else. Yeah, but the thing is, it does. But they've done studies of this. It doesn't extensively bring revenue relative to the amount of money the city had to put it in the first place. They don't need to do it. And also, fine, if they want to play chicken, go ahead, go out somewhere and become, you know, the Westchester Mets. Good luck. (laughs) Have fun. Go go become the upstep. We're the Albany Mets. God God bless you. Good luck getting a, good good luck getting an audience there. I mean, yeah, give no, me a break. I, I, I agree. They, these people they they hold the city hostage and the city goes right along with it. So I, I am against the fact that any money of public money was spent on the stadium. But I mean you know that being the case, I think they did a good job with what they have. The same thing applies for Yankee Stadium. Yankee Stadium also needed absolutely no money to be given towards it. The fact that they threatened the city that we might leave, and, you know, ridiculous. Fine, again, go leave and become the New Jersey Yankees. Good luck. The truth is that the city fell over for them, too, and said, okay, fine, and gave them something to build the stadium, and they shouldn't have. And more to the point, if you have seen a TV broadcast – now, I have not been to the new Yankee Stadium yet, okay? I've only seen games on TV. It looks Exactly, and I heard this from friends who went with us to Mets, the new Mets Stadium, the City Field. They had gone to see the new Yankee Stadium. It looks exactly like the old Yankee Stadium, and they said, "Oh, well, you know, they intended to make it that way." Can you explain to me why you need to waste millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars in this economy, with as many people are hurting, when you don't even need the stadium in the first place because you're going to make the same stadium? I mean, it, it was it was offensive. It is absolutely offensive. That literally, the only thing they changed on the Yankee Stadium is the font on the sign. It's a different font. And then you have to turn on Yankee Stadium, the Yankee Channel, and the Yes Network, and you hear people say, "Greatness has a new home." I'm like, "Greatness Greg, has a new home." Greg, let me explain so something to that's you. That's okay. what this comes down to. This the is the old Yankee Stadium. Okay? Yes. The left field was 318 feet. Yeah. Left center 399. Yeah. Center 408. Yeah. Right center 385. Yeah. Right field 314. Yeah. Now listen to the difference here, okay? It's very subtle, but it's important. The current Yankee Stadium, left field 318. Okay, well, that's the same. Oh, I'm sorry. But the next one, listen to this one. This is going to be different. Left center three, 399. Okay, well, but the center field is going to be different, right? 408. Okay, well, let's get to the total seating capacity. They lost uh, 4,000 seats. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that matter to you? 
Sure. Where do they add them? Oh, luxury boxes. This stadium is only, they renovated it in the 70s. It's not even that old as stadium standards go. It is the clear example, the usual example of Yankee excess. And that's what I'm added, saying. They added party suites, Greg. They, they built the Death Star. They this added, is just like Star Wars. The added, Death Star was blown up. They built a new Death Star. They added 37 private luxury suites. I'll bet they did. And 410 party suites. And they're having a hard time, by the way, selling some of those. I can't tell you how terrible I feel about that. It really breaks it me up It makes you inside. feel better. The party suite's capacity oh, no, I already includes feel better. wheelchair, that makes me feel file worse. transfer, and companions. Oh, really? <laughs> I, so anyway, ridiculous. It's, it, it, how can you spend all this money and build the same stadium? It's just typical Yankee stuff. Anyway, since, I'm not going to talk about that since I've already reviewed the old Yankee stadium these many years ago now. Since they the, also the beginning increased of the, show. the number of restrooms, Greg. Oh, that's, they'll thank heavens for that. Um, so Yankee Stadium, ridiculous. But the new city field is a good park, having that caveat in place that I mentioned. And I thought it was pretty good. Did, um, did I tell you I saw a little bit of a news report that Bloomberg spent, I think it was like $3 million on a, I don't know, it was like a 20, 30 minute commercial talking about how the times are tough and yes, how the city, $3 million. And then he's going to lay off like 7,000 city workers. Well, production values, clear. So it just goes, this, I mean, I just don't understand I just don't understand government. And I know we talk about, like, sometimes we need... I, I, I just don't get it. Why does this kind of stuff happen? I don't know. But if you tune in and stay tuned in, you'll hear Minister Faust talking about government in the last part of the interview about the show. Well done, Greg. <laughs> what do you want to say for a rating for Cityfield? Seven. Yeah, I think that's fine. I think a seven is good. Okay. I would say a seven for City Field. If you're a Mets fan or even just a baseball fan and you happen to be in the New York area, it's definitely worth checking out and uh, seeing how things are. Just make sure that if you come in April that you bring some Gore-Tex and some portable heaters. This is a family show. Greg. And an open flame. <laughs> so 7 out of 10 for City Field. Okay, so please stay tuned. The final part of the Minister Faust interview is coming up now, after which point, starting the next time we do the show, we will be back to our normal format. And we hope that you guys have enjoyed doing this stuff thus far. Please make sure to get in contact with us. Please make sure to check out our Facebook page, admirably run by Chris. And again, we want to thank him for that. Please make sure that you send us information uh, that you'd like us to review, things you'd like us to review, stuff like that. And we will see you guys very very soon upon further review i'm craig i'm clea see you soon yeah it's true well then so science fiction then you think it gives us an avenue into exploring those things more than might otherwise be the case i mean in other words yeah why that and not a specifically political a non-fiction even political tract then yes well exactly and i appreciate you for for, for bringing me back to to your question Generation Kill on HBO uh, was seen by few and will unfortunately not be uh, remembered um, largely. Battlestar Galactica, even with its small audience, much smaller than the audience of something like CSI or uh, or even Stargate, right. uh, nevertheless is a, a, a superb and an unflinching portrait of um, of the, the uh, of militarism and all of the, the ways that it deforms a society. Even while coming from somebody who's got a complex life, Ron Moore, who you know clearly has a great admiration for many things military, spent time in the military and whatnot, but that gives him insights that maybe just somebody else who hadn't lived that life wouldn't have. Right. It, it lets people um, enjoy an entertaining story without feel that they're being preached to mm-hmm. and still gives them the chance to comment on these things. And I don't think it's possible that any other American show could have shown people who became suicide bombers in anything that would be other than an utterly condemning uh, light. And some people would say, well, wait, what about, what about Syriana? 
There are, and there's a few other shows like this, or there's a, that movie with Don Cheadle called Traitor. Right. Um, those aren't bad. They're not bad. But what those films do not do that Battlestar Galactica did do very well is they only tell us – this would also be the movie with uh, uh, the, the, the latest um, Ridley Scott film, Body of Lies. They tell us about the oppression faced by these people, faced by U.S.-backed dictators and by the United States directly. But they don't show it. And what we do see is we see in Body of Lies, we see what's his name, Leonardo DiCaprio being tortured. We see the same thing in Syriana with um, George Clooney being tortured. So it's what we see that we remember most. And so ultimately these films say these brown-skinned you know, Muslim fanatics, they'll torture you. But we don't see, for instance, Patrice Lumumba uh, being tortured and executed on U.S. orders coming straight from the White House itself. We don't see the people in Abu Ghraib. We don't see, for that matter, people in American police stations like Amadou Jallo. I guess he was shot uh, but um, outside of his apartment, but uh, Abner Louima. So it's, it's show us the crimes, and, and Battlestar Galactica actually let us see the misery of life under occupation. And, and you know, if you think about what New Caprica looked like, it's not all that different from Gaza. I think that's really interesting. And that, in fact, even some aspects of Star Trek addressed uh, those concerns, especially in sort of the later Star Trek. I mean, as like you, I grew up with the original Star Trek, and I was watching it during the 70s on the old black-and-white TV with my father, and yeah, I, I similarly right. was sort of intrigued and, you know, loved that, and I teach it in my own classes. Um, yeah. But the later Star Trek, in fairness to the next generation, did start addressing some of these issues where it started looking into the fact that the federation was not always perfect and you know made lots of mistakes and had secret societies and and you know secret uh you know pacts with different groups and so forth and made it much more um complex than the kind of you know everyone else has in problems that we go visit in these various planets and you know that leads to complexity there but as far as the federation's concerned we've got over all that so later star trek sort of addressed that too so I recall some of that in Deep Space Nine. I don't recall much of it in Next Generation. And, I, and, 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 and it, let me just say, for the sake of argument, that what you're saying is 100% correct. I would say that there's still, I think, one of the major flaws uh, that, 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 uh, that divides original series with all of the, the subsequent ones is that the original series really did a lot to address what Gene Kuhn uh, did in Devil in the Dark. It said that find the monster who's the source of our fear and anxiety, the one that we must kill in order to have peace and justice, and you'll find that's a scapegoat and who's really actually the victim Yeah, I agree. Um, with the Horta. That is Star Trek at its, at its finest, that episode. Uh, now, what we get, and also we have an uh, original series that's full of accents. You've got Scotty's accent. You've got um, T'Pau. Yep, yep uh, absolutely. With, you know, I guess it's, it's probably an Ashkenazi accent that just, just totally sells Vulcan, you know? Um, and it's just, just absolutely wonderful stuff. And you've got other people with accents. Now, what you get in Next Generation and onwards is that the, the uh, aliens, generally speaking, don't have accents unless they're bad. And they look – the less they look like us, and when I – us is in quotation marks, meaning um, white Americans, the more likely they are to be bad. So, for instance, the Bajorans are basically good guys. They look pretty much like us, mm-hmm. whereas the uh, Cardassians, they're dark-skinned. They're definitely evil. 
Um, the, the Klingons, uh, this was one of the ones that was the worst. In the original series, the Klingons, although they kind of looked like the Huns, they were obviously supposed to be, uh, or the Mongols, they, they, they obviously looked, uh, they obviously were supposed to be the Soviets. In the next generation, they become, they're a little bit Soviets because it's, you know, post-fall uh, of the Klingon Empire uh, basically as a force, but they're much more so African-Americans and Muslims. And particularly I say African-Americans because in the original series, no African-Americans played a Klingon, but many, especially the most important one, Worf, were played by African-Americans. Now, while that, that was a great thing from a labor standpoint, it was a great opportunity because those roles weren't often open to black actors in, in, in science fiction. You look at how the Klingons were routinely depicted. They were stupid. In the very first appearance of Worf, you know, in Encounter at Farpoint, Q appears on the, on the viewing screen. Worf leaps over that weird console at the back of the bridge and draws his phaser. So evidently, Worf's never seen a TV. <laughs> you know? And he continually, continually makes idiotic mistakes. Even as late as the movies, you know, he's get, he gets a promotion, and he's required to actually jump for his hat, and he falls in the water. So he's, he's made out to be a buffoon, the big black bruiser, who, you know, don't let him get out of, you know, we give him a promotion, but don't let him get too uppity. Let him make sure he falls into the water. I'm not saying this stuff is, is conscious, but I'm saying that it's, it's embedded in the culture of the people who are making it so they don't see it. There's the one Klingon, uh, again, played by an African-American actor. He's, he's, he's challenging Data to some kind of a... And eventually, realizing he can't beat Data on one thing, he decides to headbutt him. Now, he knows the guy's a robot. <laughs> He knows it's like ramming his head into a steel wall. He does it anyway. He knocks himself out. And again, you know, even if it, even if race weren't the issue, it just it but like directly because of the casting and their metaphor, it would have been an issue still because race, uh, alien races have always been ciphers for alien cultures in Star Trek. So it's it's these people are dumb. You know, it's deeply religiosity. Um, humans are never religious in Star Trek. Uh, aliens, because they're more primitive than we are, they're allowed to be religious. Although, in fairness, the you know the Vulcans, for example, are to my mind always portrayed, always portrayed as having much better sense and lo- and you know clearly logic. Even though I know that they've sort of pulled emotion from them, which you know whatever. But uh, but they are always portrayed as being much more sort of. I don't know what the word is, much more admirable, let's say, than yeah. a lot of the sort of human tendencies towards militarism. In fact, Spock is often balancing Kirk's tendency to go running off half-cocked at anything. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and I think the same thing applies. Data, who really is sort of the Vulcan on, on Star Trek The Next Generation, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Data plays a very similar role in the sense that he is. So in that regard, you know, the Vulcans who are much more sort of outwardly exotic, um, you know, yes, they're humanoid in appearance, but everything about them is much more definitively alien from the pointed ears to, you know, the the episode where, um, uh, Amok Time, where, you know, Spock goes back to Maid and you encounter uh, T'Pau and all those people. It, it, you get the sense that it's a very alien, unusual race, but they're also viewed as being much more admirable, I think, than, than the human species on that show. No? I, th- I think, okay, that's a very good argument, and I think that it's right about a number of things. Uh, the, the Vulcans are often a, a focus of admiration. That is true and that they they are um, often portrayed as as pacifists i was going to say utterly peaceful yeah so that's positive but but it's it's this is this is a a point at which the series is ambiguous because at the same time 
they are shown as a really um, – we like their exoticism, but at the same time, we realize that they're supremely uptight. Spock is um, – I, mean, I think it's pretty easy, fair to say that his character is extremely arrogant. Um, he is uh, – you know, he's the, 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 the colored guy on board who thinks he's better than us. And, and McCoy, the southerner, really bristles at that. Now, you might say, well, yeah, that's intentional. That's pointing out the way that the, the, the we, the us in question, is, uh, needs to get over itself. But I think what's really telling is that Spock doesn't – this is not a series of – we as the audience might think the Vulcans are neat, but the humans on board don't want to be Vulcans. The, the, Spock spends his career trying to become more human even when he denies it. Well, and he himself is half human, and so I think well, yeah. that, that that tension gets played out within him. Although I will say, in fairness to that, that McCoy always looks like a moron in comparison to Spock. I mean, he, <laughs> well, you're, I mean you're, really, you're you know. right. Yes, no, that that that's true. That is true, and this this brings us to to a point that I'm going to have to make in some future essay that Obama is Spock. Okay. <laughs> well, there could so, be now, now. Come on, Minister. There could be worse. Uh, you know, worse no, no, corollaries. I guess what I mean is like his appeal. The same reason that Spock appeals to us, right, right. Is That you know, because he's a man in two worlds, and he's you know he. But he'd really rather be with with our world, and he's you know he's cool and serene, and he you know he's slim and strong and all that stuff. Uh, but you know, yeah. I mean, the Vulcans. Yeah, they're an interesting case. I mean, I know I, I I have to be fair to Star Trek. I mean, part of my animosity towards Star Trek is based on the fact that I was an absolute you know goose stepping trekker for you know all of my young life and adult life, and that, and now the idea of even using the word trekker to describe myself and even saying it out loud kind of makes me shudder because I realize the ways in which I defended for so many years the things that the show got wrong. It's distressing, right? Right. Yeah, and it kind of bitters me against the, the falling into that kind of. Um, you know, blind obedience to anything. And anyone can even be in, yeah, something as simple as Marvel versus DC or Star Wars versus Star Trek, that we have to always examine things critically and appreciate and praise them for what they do right. And you're right to point out the, the these ways in which the show got it right with, you know, admirable aspects of, of the Vulcans. Um, but, you know, the Vulcans, there is there is another aspect here. I've, I've addressed many of these things from the perspective of African-Americans, and I'm being a, a Kenyan-Canadian. But I, growing up, I always thought of the Vulcans as being kind of a cipher for East Asians, that they were seen as, uh, you know, uh, mathematical, precise, inscrutable, all these stereotypes about East Asian people. Uh-huh. Um, and certainly Amok Time gives us a sense of, um, like, Vulcan martial arts, right. uh, you know, and strange hand signs and all that. And even though Nimoy did invent the hand sign based on the uh, Hebrew letter um, Shaddai, uh, because of, of watching worship services when he was a child. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing, maybe I'm, I'm wrong, I'm guessing that if most of the audience were to take a guess which, which culture kind of serves as a model for the Vulcans, I would have said, well, because of their scientific mathematical bent, people will stereotypically associate them with East Asians. Hmm. And the, the problem with those stereotypes is that, like many stereotypes, they're dehumanizing. Um, Africans who are praised for being natural athletes or naturally musical are simultaneously being told that because it's natural, your hard work and your mind and your study have nothing to do with your success. It's like a horse runs fast because it's an animal. Um, and if you're told that you're naturally mathematical, scientific, and whatnot, then what goes with that is that you are also naturally non-sexual, you're not artistic, you don't have much of a soul, you're not, you're not a, a true full human, you're a machine. Um, and the human is the one who dwells in the middle of between the animal world and the machine world, and uh, that's what Kirk is. So, you know, 
it's, I mean, I can still enjoy these things, and some people would say, like, oh, man, you got to relax over this stuff. But, I mean, all, <laughs> all of our art forms, they are a result of our conscious understanding of our cultures and our unconscious agreement with what's in our culture and sometimes our disagreements. And, and, and it doesn't mean that, you know, I'm telling people go out and burn your Star Trek DVDs. But, you know, I understand <laughs> with, with all of these things, keep in mind the hidden messages. Enjoy the parts that you want to enjoy. But understand that, you know, all of these things have to be decoded. And same thing with, with Battlestar Galactica. And the, the same thing would apply sort of in general. Even uh, it's, it seems that you're then a little bit um, ambivalent about uh, even a lot of your own literary field thus far with Coyote Kings, your first book, and then Notebooks of Dr. Brain, that it allows you to say a lot. And yet science fiction and fantasy had their own limitations as well that also have to be sort of deconstructed in the process of, you know, also getting the, the benefits from them too, I guess. Absolutely. Um, you know, we, we, uh, I think for those of us who continue to love these genres, even with all of our lofty stuff about what they can say about the world and whatnot, I mean, we're still always going to come back to the fact that we have a great, we get a great deal of fun out of them and we should, why shouldn't we? I mean, it's, yeah. it, we're not, I guess at the you know university level, probably the word fun gets used less than at any other time in life. Sadly, but, yes, sadly. You know, but but we, we should be aiming for life to be fun for as many people as possible. I mean, that's, you know, John Stewart Mill's utilitarianism, really. You know, fun is, is a good life. Um, but while we're having that fun, we still have to pay attention because if we don't, then we're secretly signing on to things. And, and, and that's why at you know, World Fantasy Convention, I was on a panel that had a pretty frivolous topic uh, which was something like, um, um, you know, what are the combos that should never be done, like vampire elves or something yes. like that? Yes, yep. You know, I, I mean, I didn't get to choose the panel. I mean, folks are nice, and the programmers are nice, and I'm not trying to take a shot at the people who put the panel together. I'm just saying that there, you, there wasn't much you could do with that. And once the quips were done, I thought, well, I can't sit on this panel for another 53 minutes and have just, you know, ever-dwindlingly funny quips. So I just decided, you know what, I'm going to just stir stuff up because, you know, why not? And I'm going to say something that's probably um, the dumbest thing I could say at a fantasy convention if I want to leave alive, which is that um, uh, Lord of the Rings advocates genocide. And uh, I was thrilled to discover that, like, almost everybody there appreciated the point being made. Many of them had already arrived at that conclusion themselves and, and wanted to discuss weightier matters. Right, which was and that was an encouraging thing. I agree, um, and, and it was very. Th- I mean, I, I I don't. I I must fully admit that I I personally don't agree. Uh, but I, I found I found. But I mean, I find that the, the Lord of the Rings are probably my favorite works ever. So I'm I'm coming right. from from that perspective a little bit. But uh, I don't agree. But I thought it was that was that thing that you brought up was then what encouraged this question about well, you know, as you say, most of the people were perfectly willing to talk about it, but there were a couple of people who said, well, but don't you think really they weren't nasty about it, but they were more or less asking. But yes, but this is really, you know, supposed to be in a different world. And why are you trying to connect this to anything else? And that was what made me think that that was an absurd idea that you wouldn't want to connect this to something else. And why is science fiction a fantasy? Why is it divorced from the rest of society? Why would it have to be that way? So. Well, that's right. And, and in fact, the, the idea that even could be divorced, I mean, like Tolkien didn't live in an imaginary world. He lived in this one. So, you know, the, the idea that, that, that you could slaughter an entire species, that is to say race of, of, of sentient beings, and that not in, in, in any way comment on our world is absurd. Um, and, you know, I think for these, I mean, I know I understand for a lot of people, uh, you know, like me trampling on Lord of the Rings is like for most of my life, people uh, taking shots at Star Trek. Um, 
it's something that you grew up loving so much, it's really uncomfortable having somebody else, um, I guess, basically attack it. Um, and I didn't want to look at the ways that the original series was definitely, I mean, JTK was JFK. This was the, you know, the, um, the young, sexy American imperialism that was disguised as democracy. Uh, and I mean, I got older and I realized, oh, <laughs> every, every single time the, 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 the prime directive comes up, it's so that Kirk can break it. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Of course. It doesn't matter. Of course. <laughs> you know? Yeah. The, the whole Star Trek is all about the exception to that rule, really. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I mean, I'll give Next Generation credit in that there was a really interesting episode in which Picard puts his foot down and says, no, you know, this is not, you know, like optional. This is what this isn't. Uh, a stumbling block. This is actually what we believe in. This is at the, at the heart of our belief system. And I, right. and it was, you know, regardless of what I felt about the uh, moral case in question in that episode, I loved the fact that they took their own concept seriously. Right. And um, with Lord of the Rings, I mean, I came to it late in life, so that's probably one reason why I can, I can be, I can make burgers out of the sacred cows. <laughs> well, I have no problem taking uh, taking shots at sacred cows when necessary. Um, so I, I guess what I'll say, I've, I've already, uh, we've gone longer than I expected because this has been so wonderful. I, I guess the last thing I want to conclude with then, the last question I want to ask you is, uh, so so wither Minister Faust, uh, where next? I mean, you've, you said you're working on this book for The Wire, um, yeah. but I mean, are, do you plan to return? Is there is there the possibility that you will look at the world, uh, again, I don't want to give it away, but sort of post-Dr. Brain? Uh, is that going to yeah. happen, or do you have other thoughts sort of about what you're doing? I assume you're going to stay in fantasy and science fiction to some degree in the future. Yeah. But. Well, well, I mean, my plan is that I will um, definitely write more science fiction and fantasy, but I do uh, – I mean, it was it was uh, Robert J. Sawyer, the acclaimed science fiction writer from Canada, who who gave me the advice, look, you know, if you want to have a career in this, you've got to realize science fiction fantasy uh, – science fiction publishing is doomed. Uh, it's been shrinking steadily for decades, and it's going to disappear in our lifetime. And so the only way to survive it is to become like Atwood, Vonnegut, Crichton. And so, um, and if you look at Robert Sawyer's work, I mean, although it's published by Tor and therefore, or it was, it's, it, it gets um, segregated in bookstores. Uh, his newer work in Canada, anyway, is going to be published by, I think, um, Penguin Canada. So it okay. will look like mainstream work. And it will like his work has enough hard science in it that I think lots of mainstream readers will be able to pick that up and go, oh yeah, that's really yeah. They'll just they'll just buy into it. Yeah. And but I mean, hey, look, I still I mean I still have some I still have stories that have spacecraft in them, and I want to tell those stories. And 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 I and I have uh, stories that involve magic, and I want to tell those stories. Uh, so you know, I, I plan to do those things. I am working on um, two books right now. One that returns to kind of the Edmonton of Coyote Kings, although this one doesn't have magic, but it will reflect upon magic in, in uh, the ancient Northeast African mythology. Okay. And uh, I've, I'm working on another book that involves um, uh, virtual reality, post-humanism, you know, in, in a techno-hedonistic way, and oppression in Nigeria's oil delta. Wow. So, okay. uh, you know, and so, I mean, I'm, I'm having a great time coming up with this stuff and I want to return to the Dr. Brain universe and it will sort of depend on the format. And I would, I really, I, a lot of people said, look, you really need to come up with a graphic novel. So, uh, you know, I'm going to see whether there's any possibility of, of being able to work with an artist uh, to do that because there are so many terrific graphic novels coming out.
Absolutely. I'd love to see it get into film somehow too. It, it would be, oh, yeah. it'd be great somehow, you know? I would, I would adore. I mean, I just, I can't tell you how much I would love to see that happen. And I, and I have been working with uh, director Ernest Dickerson, uh, who is a, a, a film and television director, um, best known for the movies uh, Juice and um, sure. Never Die Alone. Um, and uh, yeah, we we have a screenplay for Coyote Kings uh, that we've uh, created together, and so the hope is that that'll be a movie sometime within the next few years. Well, hey, you know, if Alan, Alan Moore's Watchmen is out, I mean, there's you know V for Vendetta a couple of years ago. I know he wasn't a big fan, but he but uh, um, but you know if Alan this this stuff is starting to get out there, and I think this sort of emergence of people like Neil Gaiman, um, who again is writing you know more explicitly fantasy and science fiction, but he's doing it in a variety of different genres, and he's become you know a big enough name with things like Coraline and stuff like that that there may be more not not even crossover in terms of genre but crossover in terms of medium um that yeah. may happen and so maybe there's the chance for more of that stuff to get out there I hope so I mean I think I was really impressed with Dr. Brain I have not had a chance to read Coyote Kings yet I intend to but I, I was very impressed by someone taking satire uh taking on satire again in a serious way a la Ishmael Reed a la Jonathan Swift a la Voltaire and then also someone who was willing to do that in a genre that I love also, which is sort of the science fiction slash fantasy slash, you know, in this case, comic book superhero genre and tying them together with a lot of real important and deep commentary about the current world. So bravo. I mean, and, and I think it's I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing more from that, which is why I asked, you know, we, we need to have at yeah. least one sequel. We demand at some point <laughs> something to be said about well, that. Well, thank you very much for the encouragement. I appreciate uh, the excellent conversation with your very in- insightful questions and, uh, and observances and uh, I should say observations. And um, it's, it's really, um, for me as an author, it's, uh, uh, it's so uh, refreshing to, um, you know, to talk with an interviewer who really uh, not only knows the stuff about the, the book that's in question, but also has a much larger understanding of so many issues in the real world. So keep up the excellent work. Well, thanks very much, Minister. I appreciate it. It has been my pleasure to interview Minister Faust on Upon Further Review. And if you want more information about him, um, besides looking, besides going and buying his book from the Notebooks of Dr. Brain immediately, and also buying the Coyote Kings of the Space Age Bachelor Pad, which was released in 04, you should go to his website. And the one that I'll give, I guess, is uh, ministerfaust.blogspot.com. That's M-I-N-I-S-T-E-R-F-A-U-S-T dot blogspot.com. And of course, you can leave comments uh, for us as well on our website furtherreview.net. So thanks very much, Minister, and uh, again, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you very much. The proceeding was a presentation of Upon Further Review, hosted at www.furtherreview.net. As usual, all rights are reserved. If you liked what you heard, please vote for us at podcastalley.com, vitalpodcast.com, and add us to your list of favorites at podcastpickle.com. You can leave us a comment at www.furtherreview.net, drop us a line at a pawn at furtherreview.net, or give us a phone call or send a fax to 206-339-UFR1. That's 206-339-8371. And lastly, don't be afraid to express your opinions. We know you have them. Let them out. Feel the power. Or you could just blindly accept whatever we tell you is fact. That'll work.
That was wonderful. Bravo. I loved that. Oh, it was great. Well, it was pretty good. Well, it wasn't bad. Well, there were parts of it that weren't very good, it though. It could have been a lot better. I didn't really like it. It was pretty terrible. It was bad. It was awful. Oh, it was terrible. Get him away. Hey, boo. Boo.